Father, thank you for this time together. We are so grateful to gather. What a joy to sing out to you, to lift our voices to you, to be glad in you. Lord, we are blessed. Whenever the world begins to stray and continue to do what it does, we have our great God who loves us and is mindful of us, Lord. Remind us of those truths today as we study your word. Take us back to the beginning as you are creator and God who oversaw all that you did. And you still sustain it and care for it, every detail. Help us realize how great a God you are as we go into this new year. Lord, we thank you for those that are here, but we also pray for those who can't be. Many are sick or at home or coughs and flus and that, Lord. There are some in the hospital, Lord. Please care for them, cause them to get better, Lord. We want to see them back here, and, and we just pray that you would give them strength. Thank, thank you for those that you've protected as they traveled uh, back and forth, Lord. And, and even for those who have suffered injuries, Lord, help them. Help them recover quickly, Lord. Father, thank you for our missionaries around the world. So glad to be a part of the gospel in many nations. We thank you for all those mission points, churches being planted, men being trained to preach the gospel, uh, villages being reached. Lord, help us this year to engage even more with that, Lord. And we pray that you would give them favor and grace in their ministries, Lord. Help us be mindful of those who serve in places where we have not yet been called. Lord, thank you for this time together. May your word jump all over us today. And encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalms 104 is my text today. And my desire for us as brothers and sisters of Riverbend is to, is to this year grow closer to Christ. I'm not a New Year's resolution guy, but often at the end of the year I want to look back and say, how'd you do, Scott? And not certainly in a legalistic way in any way, but do I love the Lord more now than last year? Will I love him more in this coming year? Will I live closer to Christ? That's my prayer for myself and for you. But I also pray for transparency. I think as Christians, um, we get used to this world that hides behind veils, doesn't it? And we're not very transparent at times. I want our church to weep with one another and praise the Lord with one another. Share hurts and burdens and, and praises and joys. Learning to do that, caring for each other. I want us to be convinced that we can think much of Christ and less about ourselves this year. Much about Christ and less about ourselves. We live in a world that's full of self-centeredness. And the world comes with trials and tribulations, Jesus tells us. We have fears and worries, but the only thing that will overcome that is a higher view of God. That's my goal this morning. To give you a higher view of God from the Word of God itself. And maybe even as you start this year, the biblical truth will capture you today. That's my goal. I want it to capture you. Where you'll be um, enthralled with this creator God who, who's got his hands on everything under the created world. And yet he is mindful of you. Well, this psalm has no official title. Um, often the, in the Hebrew, you'll see in some psalms, there'll be some introductional thoughts in that. Uh, and the Vulgate and the Septuagint often include those. But here we really have no title to this. But many believe it's attributed to David. It sounds like King David. It might be. We're not sure. But that doesn't matter. This is the Word of God. But many also believe that Psalms 103 and 104 are tied together and may should have not been split. 
Remember, we added chapters and verses to find our way around in there. And some may have been linked together. And these two go so good together. They're a perfect pair and they illustrate a perfect balance. The Psalms both begin, if you look at Psalms 103 and Psalms 104, they both begin and end with this statement, praise the Lord, O my soul. Notice that, see that in the text? Psalms 103, Psalms 104. Both of them begin and end. Well, they're bookend Psalms. And Psalms 103 declares the goodness of God and salvation. I almost preached that one, but I ended up leaning toward this one because it goes back to Genesis. It goes back to new beginnings. And, and I thought that would be appropriate for the new year. But Psalm 104 declares the greatness of God in creation. Psalm 103 depicts God as the father of his children. And while Psalm 104 depicts God as creator and sustainer of his creation, Psalms 103 lists the benefits of those who have tasted the loving kindness, the grace of God. And Psalms 104 lists the benefits of his gracious work and his oversight of his creation. One of the writers that I read, an older writer, long gone, said Psalms 104 is this, it's the most perfect hymn the creation has ever sung. What you hear from this psalm is, is this Beautiful interpretation of many voices of God's creation singing this sweet melody to God. That he's worthy of praise, that he, he cares for them and he has a sovereign providential care about his children and his creation. In fact, the, tire, the psalm brings in the entire universe as we'll see here. It brings in land and sea, clouds and wind and sunlight. It brings in plants and animals and sun and moon and, and light and darkness all expressing the glory of God and who he is. What a great start to a new year to remind ourselves of a high, high view of God. And that's what this psalm will do for us. As we work our way through this, just one note before I jump into these 10 points. Don't forget Christ. The Bible clearly delineates Christ as creator. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 says that in the last days has spoken through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, so he he, he owns all things. Then it says this, through whom also he made the world. Christ is our creator. John 1 tells us that. Hebrews 1 tells us that. Colossians 1 tells us that. The Bible tells us that Christ is a creator. So as I speak of God and speak of particularly the Father's role here in creation, let us not forget their unity together. And we realize that Jesus Christ is our creator. All right, here we go. Buckle up. First two points are the longest because we're going to establish who God is and what he's doing here. And then we're going to work our way through this beautiful uh, Psalm, Psalm 104. Number one, a wardrobe of glory and his obedient creation. A wardrobe of glory and his obedient creation. Look at verse one with me. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Well, here's, as we mentioned earlier, here's this bookend statement. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And notice the repetition. We've seen it in the previous psalm and now again here. Repetition always tells us God wants us to know something. Do you desire God to bless your inner person? There's a deep longing for God here. It's, it's really a phrase or a call to worship in spirit and truth, the spirit of who God made you. He made you uniquely. He's talking about your inner person, who you are there. Longs, it's a soul longing. 
and, and wanting to praise God because they've been redeemed and they see God as head of all things. It's really a stirring of the soul. When's the last time your soul was really stirred? I hope recently. I hope when you were reading your Bible one morning or th thinking about who God was, your soul is stirred that God loves me. He, he's mindful of me. He wants a relationship with me. That's soul stirring, isn't it? Are you stirred by the soul, your soul, by what God does? Notice he says, oh, Lord, my God. That's extremely personal. Oh, Lord, some God out there. <laughs> if you're out there. That's what, that's what agnostics believe or people, well, maybe there's God, maybe there isn't. No, no, no. He's my God. <laughs> there's a personal relationship there. The psalmist knows it. And notice he says, you are very great and you are clothed with splendor and majesty. See, the believer worships his God as a great one. You're a great God. Oh, we, Sam, sometimes things don't go your way, and pretty soon you're going, well, you know, if there was a God, he would do this for me. I hear young men particularly talk about that all the time. They have no idea who they're talking about. See, everything's built around them, not about God. Here the psalmist says, you're a great God, and you're clothed with splendor and majesty. Think about the foreign gods of, of the land at this time. They were described as cruel and shameful, stone-cold lumps of ivory or wood or whatever they were made of. They weren't great. They could be burned just like wood was burned in the fire. Or they could be re-chiseled and made into something else. They weren't great. But not Yahweh. Not, not the God of Israel. Not our God. Here the psalmist gives us the picture of an almighty God with flowing characteristics. Look at this in verse 1. Splendor and majesty. They hang on our God like a perfect garment. Can you see that? He's, he's talking about his glory in, in, in a way of a dress hanging on him, a garment. Notice this verse gives you a view of the creator standing with authority and power before his creation. And as he creates this invisible God, has arrayed himself with splendor and glory. The psalmist wants us to understand this. He senses that there's a deep meaning to creation. And almost in a way he's saying the universe is almost the dressing of God. It almost helps us see how glorious he is in, in the way he dressed us and the way he created this world. Look at verse 2 with me. Covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heavens like a tent curtain. Well, God's splendor and majesty are described with a glorious light and they hang on him like clothes. But the light refers to his purity and his essence, his nature. He's absent of evil. He's perfect in everything he does. That's what that light is drawing you to. Here, we kind of get a glimpse of, of the writer taking us back to Genesis where it all began. Where the creation of light was, was early on in, in, the, in the timing of creation as God spoke creation into it. And yet the, the psalmist is kind of somewhat paralleling the work of God. It's a, this poetic, beautiful poetic reflection of the creation count here. He's worshiping God. It's something we've lost in the church today. We've led evolution and people who hate God teach our children that there is no God. We can't do that. We must honor and lift him up. Notice the scene is fixed on the creator here. There is no evolution taking place. It's fixed on the one who spoke into existence. I love this statement, this light of his garment here. 
it manifests itself in such clarity because I think we can see that. And when we really see it, where God really reveals, this is on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. There Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, and he takes them up on the mountain there, and there God unveils the Lord Jesus, who he truly is in front of him. Here's what the Bible says. And he was transfigured before them, the disciples. Listen to this. And his face shone like the sun. Well, you shouldn't do this, but go out and when we get done, hopefully it clears. Go take a look at the sun. You can't look at it very long. Can you imagine what he looked like there for just a moment in time? He's unveiled to the, to the disciples. That's why John says, we saw his glory. We beheld his glory. We know who he is. See, he's dressed in this. And then the Bible says that his garment became like white as light. Remember, they have no lights. They have no LEDs. Light was sun, and they would use reflections to light their houses and, and candles and stuff like that. But they know what this meant. This is a, a white that you can't reproduce. Only the sun can produce this. This is what they saw in Jesus. Paul, speaking of the Father, says something very similar in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 15 through 16. He says, He, the Father, who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, notice those shared titles. Then he says this, Who alone possesses immortality, immortality, and listen to this, and dwells in unapproachable light. Unapproachable light. It's, he, he's so magnificent and so glorious, the psalmist is doing everything he can to get you to see that, to see how glorious he is. Spurgeon, writing on this verse in Psalms 104, said this. He said, if, if light itself is but a garment and a veil, what must be the blazing splendor of his own essential being? We are lost in astonishment and dare not pry into the mystery lest we be blinded by his insufferable glory. Because if we just think about light, and that's just, that's just the reflection of him, that's what he's dressed in, but yet look at the nature or the person of God. Oh, we're just blinded by who he is. He's a glorious being. Notice verse 2 says, he stretched out the heavens like a tent curtain. Isn't this, uh, I love word pictures. You could see this flowing garment of splendor and majesty on him. And as he stretches out his arm, the, the, what seems to us the endless universe is stretched out before his arms. Planets and solar systems and all of that just ro roll out from the power of his hand. Look, they had no telescopes. They, they had no scientists that tell you all this stuff. They simply looked at what God did and worshipped him. They understood who he was. And listen, as impressive as the length and breadth of the universe, when we look at Hubble Space uh, Telescopes and, and look at that, we are just marvel at that. It doesn't compare to who the creator is. As glorious as our creation is, there is one even greater. He is truly impressive, isn't he? Look at verse 3. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. Well, upper chambers in the ancient world were usually a room up above the house, somewhere where they could be secluded and, and have some privacy. And most likely this is a reflection of God's place. He, he's above the water that's stored in the clouds. Um, God tells Job, do you know where I store the snow? <laughs> I love that saying. 
Do you know? Uh, no. Um, it's kind of telling us where he is, yet this glorious God is removed from mankind. His holiness removes him from us, and yet, and yet there are ways he's with us. And certainly in a New Testament, New Covenant way, he resides within us, but yet this is where he is at. See, God's involved with us. But this says activity, doesn't it? See, the activity and excitement goes on. Look at the metaphors here of his chambers and his chariot clouds and walking on the wind. It invites us to see a world that God delights in. And you see it charged with his energy. The creator has created. And he's glorious and he's walking on the wind. (laughs) What an amazing statement. Look at verse 4 with me. He makes the wind his messengers and flaming fire his ministers. Well, this has allusions to angels, most likely. Psalms 103 ends with that type of thinking. Bless you, verse 20 and 103, you angels. They're at your beck and call, they're your host, they're there to serve you, and so forth. And of course, the writer of Hebrews connects this to them. But what, what it's trying to tell us is God rules over the angels. He equips them, commissions them. He's surrounded by servants. And I want you to think about this. Not only angelic servants is he surrounded by, but he also has the wind as his servant. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Uh, yeah, we're going to send a little spinner down to Florida. Whew. He has all that in his control. He, he, this is who our God is. This is who we live daily with. This is who we have a relationship with. All this is at his beck and call as creator king. He drives the chariot clouds. (laughs) Oh, he has authority and rule over his creation. In Hebrews, the writer takes this verse and says this in Hebrews 1, verse 7. And he says of the angels, he said, Who makes his angels winds and, and his ministers a flaming fire? And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying, yes, he's speaking of the wind, but he's also speaking of his angels. But what he's saying is God, Christ, the Messiah, has deity. He has control over everything. The wind, the angels, he has control over those. It speaks as God, point two, a creation that displays God power and judgment. A creation that displays God's power and judgment. Look at verse five with me. He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter, totter forever and ever. Well, there's no doubt the psalmist understood that God was creator. He wasn't wrestling with evolution in any way. He believed that God owned all things, created all things, and established all things. It did not happen by chance or, you know, this ran into that and there was a big bang and all. He, he is, this so far out, that's so, that's such a lie from the pit of hell. And the writer here is reminding us that God has control of those things. It's only when the modern age began to reject God that we see what we have now. And this abandonment of these fundamental truths. Somebody said, well, why are you guys starting a Bible college? Well, this is one of the reasons. We, we think it's important. We think it's important to come along, young people, older people, and go to Bible school. And here, God created the heavens and the earth. Period. Reject God as creator? Hmm, you're probably not going to get him as a savior. They go together. And so one of the things that we see is, uh, you know, often, and, we, and I've seen this, you know, I've seen this through 30 some odd years of ministry. Some of our young people go off from the church and pretty soon the universities lie and lie and lie to them and pretty soon they begin to believe it. And there is no God. All things just kind of came about. And if there's a God, he's not interested in me. So we need, we need to re, 
We need to stand on these truths. This is all through the Bible that God spoke his creation into existence. Notice this phrase, I love this, so that it will not totter forever and ever. Well, who can do this? Have you ever calculated the weight of the earth? I know they come up with stuff. They try to come up with some weight of the earth. Uh, you know, and they're such giant numbers, like they're numbers for evolution. But think about that. Who can calculate it? So that it spins perfectly so you and I don't fly off of it. And it doesn't just somehow just start spinning and lose, go, and we out somewhere and we lose everything that we have. Who can do this? Listen, brothers and sisters, God built it well. He's a good builder. And the psalmist is telling us that he built the earth's foundation perfectly. It's solid and it does not move. Do you worry about the earth when you get up in the morning? I doubt it. Well, I hope we stay in orbit today. God did that. And we, and we, we just don't even think about it at a time. He, he, he's got our earth in his hands. Hebrews chapter 1. Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. He has it all in his hands. It's all controlled. It spins perfectly. It doesn't wobble. Imagine a wobbling earth. What would happen to us? If it slows down or speeds up, we're all dead. God holds it perfectly. It, spin, it spins at the right speed for us to sustain life. And it will do that till he pulls his hands off of it. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, 11, and 12. You should read that, write that down. I don't have time to get to it today. There, the Bible says he will dissolve it. He will speak and dissolve the world. And you say, well, what does he do? Well, he just pulls his hands off of it. But one of the things I love about that verse, what's most interesting in that verse, after he tells us that he'll dissolve it with this intense heat, there's your big bang, it'll burn up, there's a roar. The Bible says in verse 10, there's a great roar. So there, if there's a big bang, it's the one when he finishes the earth. But then it says this, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, the heavens and earth, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now that's an astounding verse. This glorious creator God has... Everything in his hands keeps our world from spinning out of control. He has the ability to pull his hands off it and destroy it someday, the heavens and the earth. And then Peter says, well, what kind of people should we be? If that's true, what kind of people should we be? Those who know God. I think we should be worshipers. I think that we should wake up in the morning and say, Lord, thanks for keeping this world spinning the way you do. I'm grateful. I mean, think about how great and glorious he is. Notice, Verse 6, you cover it with the deep as with garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. Now, here, the psalmist seems to have two events in mind, I think. I think that what he's saying is there's a separation of waters at creation. I think he's referring back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 9 through 10. I think one of the great catastrophic events of creation is when the world is covered with water. The Bible is very clear about that. The Spirit's hovering over the deep. All of a sudden, God calls the, war, the earth, the land, out of the water. Can you imagine the runoff of that? As he brings this land up out of the water and the water running off that, oh, tremendous uh, erosions and canyons and all that that would have taken place just to bring that out. And I think he's speaking about that in this text. And then I think he brings in the global flood here, which is described in Genesis 7. And look, he says, he says here that the waters were standing above the mountains. Well, Genesis chapter 7, verse 19 through 20 says that the water in the flood, great noatic flood, prevailed 15 cubits over the top of the mountains. 
This psalmist, whoever it is, by the inspiration of the scriptures, is taking us back to the beginning to remind us how great a God we have. He speaks in his creation, and he has the ability to judge it like that. And wipe out all things that have breath in the nostril, Genesis chapter 7 says. Now, this is a great God. He creates, he can send a deluge, he can show his power. And the psalmist wants to bring these events together in a very poetic way. But look at verse 7. At your rebuke they fled. The sound of your thunder they hurried away. When the waters had completed what God sent them to do, he calls them back. Genesis chapter 8 verse 3, he calls them back. He tells them that's enough. Now who can do this? Anybody want to run after church and go out to the ocean and tell them what to do? I, I, you know, these guys that want to do miracles and all this stuff. You know, well, let's just go to the ocean and you go tell them the, you can tell the ocean what to do. So you get that, then I'll believe you. Our God tells water what to do. This is why Jesus can walk on it. This is why Jesus can stand in a boat after being asleep and rebuke the wind and the waves and they obey him immediately. And so our God in this verse 7 sets this. And notice his, the, the psalmist describes God's voice as thunder. Man, you ever hear a good clap right outside your house? You know, your hair kind of, you know, goes up and, whoa. I mean, windows just rattle. Florida has such great lightning and thunderstorms here. And you, well, I think that's what the thought, that's, he's trying to express the power of God that can speak as voices like thunder. And yet, he'll whisper in his heart through the word of God to us. He'll whisper in our hearts. This is a beautiful relationship that we have with him. Look at verse 8. The mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. Well, during God's great flood, he pushed the valleys down and he shoved mountains up. He pushed the continents around and created what we have today. He established the landscape and some would sink and some would rise. It's not hard to study Genesis 6 through 9. And some of our, the great men that we love have done some of this uh, creation research institutes and places like this have shown us over and over. And it isn't hard to go out and stand, uh, well, we've got to go to Colorado to find 10,000 feet and look down and watch where everything drains down. Well, there was no worldwide flood. I'm at 10,000 feet and everything, and there's seashells up at 10,000 feet, and everything drains down. I don't know what you call that. See, the Bible just tells us and the world tells us, creation is telling us of the creator and his power to do that. Gene and I were just watching one of those blue planet things or something on there the other day. And they, were, they had a rovey kind of down, one of the deepest it's ever been, down in some canyon and down in the ocean. And they found these, these uh, caves that were once lava forms that had cooled and collapsed. And they, they, we don't know what this is here for. Well, Genesis tells us that he opened up the deep <laughs> You crack open the world, guess what's coming out? Lava. Hot, hot lava at degrees we can't even fathom, mixed with cold water and steam and all that comes out. And Oh, you can't imagine what went on in this world in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8. What a, what a control God had on that. He pushed mountains up and he shoved valleys down and he, and he gave us this beautiful land we live in. He's in control of that. He establishes it. Look at verse 9. You set the boundaries that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. Well, the waters, he waters the mountains in the valley. He does that for them still today. But he said, look, now I have a boundary for you. 
And guess what he did? In Genesis 9, 11 through 17, he made a Noahic covenant. And he says, look, I'm going to put a bow in the sky and tell you I'm not going to destroy this world anymore with water. He's going to destroy the world, but he ain't going to destroy it with water. And that's that glorious covenant written in Genesis 9 for us of this, what we call a Noahic covenant, that he would not destroy the, the, the world that way. And yet now the rainbow sign is totally abused, right? And, and yet that's God's promise to us. That God knows us and loves us and set boundaries to his creation. This will not happen any longer. And guess what? There's never been a worldwide flood. And there never will be. He will destroy it in a different way someday. Look at what, just one last thought on here. God has commanded that the waters of the sea are only to, to bring blessing now. He, he uses the waters and he gave them limitations. And I, I love standing at the ocean. And every once in a while we have a storm surge, right? And it'll come over and you people on the beach got to run for your lives. But guess what? It returns. And you go back. And you go back to your ocean. And it goes right back where it was told to go. I love that. I say it all the time. I go to the ocean. I go, yeah, you're right where you're supposed to be. Even high tides, you're right where God wants you to be. That's, that's someone worth worshiping. Number three, got to go. God's power to destroy and to nurture his creation. God's power to destroy and to nurture his creation. He does both. Look at verse 10 with me. He sends forth springs in the valley, and they flow between the mountains. So on one hand, he uses water he created to bring ultimate judgment, Genesis chapter 6. But on the other hand, look what he does. He uses those waters to nurture the earth. He, he gives the earth drink. And the psalmist reminds us that the earth is satisfied with God's work. Oh man, the environments go crazy, don't they? Well, we're doing this and we're doing... The Bible says the earth is actually satisfied with what God's doing. They groan for the return of, of Christ, but it's satisfied. God sends what they need. Now look at verses 11 and 12. This is very fascinating. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkey quenches their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heaven dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. Now, the psalmist here is considering how the plants and, and, and animals and all of that are in this plan of God. And he brings out wild donkeys. Did anybody know a different name for them? <laughs> He said, why does he bring that out? Why a wild donkey? He's speaking particularly of donkeys that roam the dry, arid lands of the east. And we still have those, have those in America too. We have burrows that are out all across our, our deserts here as well. But why them? Well, I want you to think about this. He takes the most dirty and dusty and probably the most thirsty animal in the world. And he uses him as an example. This really unruly animal, often called names, right? We make up names for them. I'm trying not to use it. <laughs> and yet God, God provides for that donkey. He provides for him. And what the psalmist is doing is showing that even in the driest, arid climates, God is caring for creatures. Look, he goes further in this verse 11 and 12. He says, even the smallest creatures, they live in the bushes and the trees, and God meets their needs. And, and I love this because this is kind of the idea of the songbirds that are by a stream or, or maybe even just a pond or a puddle of water. And the songbirds come in there and they, they drink of that and they're God's natural choir. Can you hear them singing to God? 
That's what the psalmist is helping us understand, that God is in, he cares about the wild donkey and he cares about the finch who lives among the branches, who lifts up his chirping as gratitude and praise towards his maker. Oh, how Christians should be ashamed when we complain. <laughs> I mean, shouldn't we? This God just cares for these littlest things, right? These microscopic things down in the bottoms of the ocean. He knows of them. He created them. And he cares about a sparrow. Matthew 6, 26 says the birds of the air, look at them. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worthy much more than they? Oh, do you love God? Do you see that he cares about you? He's creator God. He's sustainer God. He's savior God. Number four, God's wonderful order and design in his creation. God's wonderful order and design in his creation. Look at verse 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth good, bring forth food from the earth. Now here the psalmist continues his thoughts on nature again, right? He, he's seeing how God created wonderful order and design. Notice he gives credit to God in verse 14 that he causes the grass to grow for the cattle. So the grass feeds the cattle, the rancher farms the grass, and God gives everybody what he needs. I, I think that's fascinating. This is what God does. Genesis 1.29 says he's given all of this plant, this yielding seed to the surface of the earth where we can have food by it. Today, you can go out, maybe not today, maybe in a, a month or so when it warms up, you can take a seed, take, pick a seed, tomato seed, squash, whatever you want. Go put it in the ground, and it's going to grow exactly like it did all these years before. The seed doesn't become something else. It hasn't evolved. It hasn't come into something and become something better. It's the same thing God made. He said, let them come after their kinds. I remember when we had, I think I may have told the story, when we had some kids from the city on the ranch one time, and I had a cow-calf, and she was on the road going out of our ranch, and she had just calfed that morning. I'd seen the calf, and so I have all these kids on the back of the truck, and we're going out to do a VBS or something. And I stop and go, look, that cow had a, that cow had a horse. They go, where? Oh, no, he had a calf just like God said from the beginning. It doesn't change. See, this is why evolution mocks God. It hates God. It's not satisfied with God. Not Christians. We're satisfied with God. We're satisfied with our creator, our savior, what he has done. And like the creation that worships God, so do we. Look, uh, we had a cattle ranch, and the only way to feed them is God has to send rain for the seed that we'd put in the ground so the hay would grow, and then we could harvest that hay and have that stored for them in the winter when they needed it. It's a beautiful cycle that God has made. And what a beautiful thing he does to let us take care of it. See, God's design, designed the ecology of this world so that he creates, he gives, he sends the water, we work, and we get food. What a beautiful nation we live in. Been to Publix lately and walked in their produce department? There's more apples in there than I could eat in six years. Right now. Right now, during pandemics and everybody's going crazy with their hair on fire, there's all the apples I can eat right there at Publix. Isn't that amazing? God constantly provides for mankind, and yet we mock him. And we rob him of his creative right. Lord, be merciful to us. Because we don't care for you at times. Look at verse 15. 
Let's talk about some happy juice here. And wine, which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food that sustains man's heart. Well, here we get the Hebrew word for fruit of the vine here. It's something that's to be consumed in moderation. <laughs> it, has a, it had a tendency, particularly back then, to, to bring life back to a person when they were worn out. It carries a high sugar content into it and, and brought vitality back. It often brought joy during mourning and so forth. But like many of God's blessings, he gives so much to man, and man, what does he do with him? He abuses him. Why does the Bible say not to be drunk with wine? Because it abuses the grace of God. It abuses the grace of God. Drunkenness is godlessness. It's not being a steward of what God has given. And so we handle these things carefully. In fact, some may even say, you know what, I will not take that liberty because I, I don't want to do anything that would hurt the gospel. That's some people's stance. Drinking, those type of things are liberties that God gives us, but I find too many people that find that liberty so freely, but fail to freely share the gospel. I'm not on any soapbox here at all. I just want us to think about it. And yet God has given this. And, and I understand that you know, there's a joy to sitting around and enjoying a good beverage together, whatever, whatever that is. There's joy in that. And, but there's a remembrance of saying, you know where this came from, kids? God gave us this food we have on our table. One of the prayers I always pray when I pray, if you're with me and you hear me pray for food, I always say, Lord, thank you for giving us this food and drink. I want to publicly say that. I want to say that so I hear it, so God hears it. And those around me, thank you for giving that. You Well, Scott, you just paid for lunch. All of it came from the Lord. The wealth to pay for it, whoever grew that and prepared it, God is way out in front of us. May we think like that, and I think that's what the writer is doing. Look at verse 16. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted. Now, this is fascinating. I wonder if the psalmist ever saw trees like the giant sequoias in the, in, in, uh, the west. Oh, here our trees are small, right? You don't need a giant change all day. They're about this bug. Oh, boy, if I could just transport you to the to Sequoia National Forest and stand at the base of those mammoth giants. There's so little rain out there, even, even where the sequoias grow. You know they drink from the fog? They, they go up through the canopy and they drink from the fog. That's how they get it. God created these tremendous uh, trees for us. He says, which he planted. He planted those things. And I don't know too much about the, the cedars of Lebanon, but here's what I do know. God planted them, God had them cut down, and guess what he built with them? The temple of God. Isn't that interesting? So in the trees of Lebanon, God was glorified by their growth, and these cedars, and however big they were, they must have been fairly good size because they brought beams from them, and yet in their death, as they were cut down, they glorified God. And I think the psalmist is marking this in some way. He sees this as a wonderful thing, that God is proud of his creation and that they glorify him even in death. Look at verse 17. Where the birds build their nests and the storks whose home is in the fir tree. Here the trees were planted for the worship of God, but they also give homes to his, to his winged creation. I think that's a beautiful thing. Birds are phenomenal. I'll never forget the first time I take the boys hunting. Um, I always tried to, whatever we shot and harvested, I always tried to show them how, 
unique God was. I remember with the boys and shooting a green-winged teal. We have blue wing out here, but out there we had green. And I remember fanning out that, that wing. And I remember saying, boys, you'll never see color like that ever man-made. No computer, nothing can generate that color in that wing. And we sat there and marveled, just with my little boys, marveling at what God had given us. We ate that duck, um, and he was good. But we worshiped. We, we were amazed at what God did. And we could see it, and it hadn't changed. It's just like the ducks he made in Genesis 1. He hasn't evolved into a dinosaur or something or vice versa. He's still the duck that God made after his kind. Look at verse 18 with me. The high mountains are, are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge to the sick. Cephalim. Now that, that word is probably something like a rock badger. I think it's probably more like a marmot. And here's the point. God's diversity in his creation from the great cedars of verse um, 16 and 17 to God's winged creatures that, that find refuge in trees and bushes and so forth to animals in the mountains like Rocky Mountain sheep or goats to furry little creatures like a marmot that hides in those rocks. All of them God cares for. That's what he's trying to do. He, he's trying to show us God cares for these, these animals that, that don't have souls. They're, they're there to tell us we have a great, great God who watches over all of his creation. Number five, the sun and the moon bless the world God created. The sun and the moon bless the world that God created. Here the psalmist now turns his attention to the moon and sun you go, why did he go moon first? Well, in the Hebrew day, the evening starts. The day starts in the evening. And so that's probably why they did it. But the Canaanites and the Egyptians, they, they attribute it to rain and seasons and all these lunar cycles to their deities, these dead, cold things that, that they would bow down in front of. But not the Israelites and certainly not the church. The Lord sovereignly rules over his creation and he establishes it with great design. Look at verse 19 with me. He made the moon for seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. Now, isn't that fascinating? God blessed this world with two great lights. Genesis chapter 1. He made two great lights. One to rule the light, one to rule the day. And, and here they operate according to God's plan. The moon and sun establish our growing seasons, our, our tide charts. All of that is in perfect balance. Imagine that, getting out of balance. See, they make movies of this, right? It's, you know, uh, Ice Age comes and they, you know, everybody's dying in New York and you know, whatever. God's got it all together, right? And he holds it and we have our seasons for it. Man, I am so grateful that the sun's coming back higher and higher here pretty soon. I mean, winter, the three days we had was terrible. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that sun being up where we live it here in Florida, but God has us in control, wants you to be Blessed by it. I want you to see the great God. Look at verses 20 through 23. Listen to this. I love this passage. You appoint darkness and it becomes night. Who can do that? In which, you, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lion roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. Well, here in this great plan, as the psalmist is putting it out, is, is God provides darkness for the beast and all the creepy, crawly things to do their hunting. This is why we get kind of freaked out when we're out there at night. It's their turf at night. 
And God established this, right? But when the sun rises, God provides daylight and the lions lay down and the wolf lays down and man goes out to work. God's always established it that way. And so remember that God not only feeds the lion and the, and the, um, the wolf, but he, he feeds the birds, he feeds all the things they eat. And think about this just for a moment. Working at dark is difficult. If you've ever gone down I-4 and they're working at night, I mean, they got the place lit up like you can't believe, right? Because we, us humans, this high creation of God, we get disoriented in the dark. God did not give us the eyes the animals have. And so we feel disoriented. I remember haying. Um, we had to bail at night because there's such little dew out west. You have to do a little bit of dew to keep your bales together. So we'd bail at night. And I would put lights all over my tractors and uh, all over my balers because it was so, you get disoriented out there in the dark. And you're tired already because we don't live in the dark. We live in the light. There's a connection there. And God, God made us people who work in the light. So we provided light so we could go out and provide for our families. Number six, the mystery of the deep glorifies God. The mysteries of the deep glorify God. Look at verse 24 with me. This is a setup verse. O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. So here the psalmist continues to amaze, but he's getting ready to make another statement. He's, he, but he reminds it, this is, belongs to you. This is your possession. They are God's property, not yours. And so look, if we abuse God's property or waste it, we've robbed from the creator. I remember when the boys shot a rabbit one day. We were just starting to hunt, got them the first 22s and so forth. They shot a rabbit. Dad, I got this rabbit. All right, good. We're eating it. What? <laughs> yes, because you took the life of that. Let's eat it. See, it's stewardship. We don't rob from God. And we taught our boys very early on, and they, things they still shoot and hunt today, they do it a lot more than I do. Um, they eat because that belongs to God. Now, notice verse 25 and 26. He's going to turn to the deep. This is fascinating. There is a sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There, there the ships move along, and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. Now here the psalmist turns to the vastness of the oceans, and he's probably, most likely, he's looking at the Mediterranean Sea. That's where he would have been in that region. Um, travel wasn't so easy. And yet he sees this world just teeming, teeming with, with wildlife. Not too long ago, a couple of the guys from church, we went out and deep sea fish maybe a couple years ago, um, and we just hammered them that day. We got into the uh, dolphin, uh, 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 mahi mahi, for those who eat it, um, and we just had a great day. On our way back in, we saw a ruckus going on. And so we headed over towards, I'll never forget it, and there's this huge bait ball, and there's sharks and dolphins and black tuna and all these animals feeding on this, and they were flying up out of the water, and we were just filming it as we circled around it, and it was just teeming with life. It was an amazing thing. I record it all, I'll keep it till I die, because you don't get to see that all the time. The, world, the, 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 the oceans God made were teeming, and they still are today, no matter what they tell you. They're teeming, because God said they were to reproduce, and they keep doing that. But then you get to this verse where he brings in this Leviathan. This is an interesting guy. So not only does he create these little teeny weird-looking things that are down at the bottom of the ocean, but he creates these monsters, these massive animals that are in the ocean as well. Job gives us a little bit of heads up on this. This is God talking to Job, um, telling him about Leviathan. Just listen to this. Job chapter 41 reads this. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? 
He's messing with them. This is some kind of T-Rex, semi-aquatic type of thing. Who knows what this is? Everybody has their thoughts on it, but we don't. Or press his tongue with a cord, like you're going to put a bit in his mouth. Yeah, good luck. Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he, will, he make, uh, will he make many supplications for you, or will you speak to him with soft words like that's going to work? Will you make a covenant with him? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you, will you bind him for your maidens? Like, hey, honey, I got you a T-Rex. You know. Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Then listen to this statement. Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle and you won't do it again. I don't know what this thing is and everybody has guesses at it. But it's mean. <laughs> and it's going to eat you. God made all of this. From the Leviathan to the, to the teeming balls of, of, of little fish that everything tries to eat. He has it all. The Septuagint and the Vulgate refer to the Leviathan as a sea monster. That's how they interpret that. Some kind of dragon. But God has made it for his glory. Seven, God is glorified by his creation's dependency. Look at verse 27 and following. Here the psalmist considers all kinds of creative things, land, sea, air, and he sees that they're dependent upon God. Look at verse 27. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. Now, I like that. One of the things you learn in, in the ranching world was we ran on, let me explain this. Our cows ran outside. They were on, on what we call open range. And so we would turn out in April and gather them again in October. What's interesting about the, the way God created our grasses and how he brings the season along is the grasses contain certain proteins, more in places and less in other places. But as the summer went on and the sun got stronger and higher, the grasses got more protein in them. And when you turned them out, they would stay at the lower bases of the mountain because the grass had the proteins they knew they needed. And the cattle would eat there. As, this, as the summer went on, those cattle worked their way up higher and higher, up to nine, ten thousand feet. At the end of the year, you'd find them on the top of the mountain because that's where the grass was the strongest. And they knew it because God designed it that way. And the Bible says here in verse 27 that they wait for you to give them food in due season. If you turn the cattle out the top of the mountain the first of the year, they're going to die up there. They're waiting for God to give them what they need. And we watch this. This is why birds migrate. This is why we see the animal world do different things. They're seeking the food that God is providing for them. This is glorious to the Lord, isn't it? Look at verse 28 and following. Look at, look at the personal pronouns of God. You give it to them. They gather it up. You open your hand and they're satisfied with good. You hide your face and they are dismayed. Now look at this. You take away their spirit and they expire and return to dust. Ooh. God, God is a giver of death and life. This is what he does. Notice verse 30. You send forth your spirit. They are created and you renew the face of the ground. So the spirit's always associated with life, right? For a Christian, the spirit gives us new life. Regeneration, right? We have life in Christ. Spirit always involved with life. Number eight, God in his enduring glory. Verses 31 and verses 32. Let the glory of the Lord forever endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his work. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. 
Well, here the psalmist pauses and considers everything he's probably written here about the power and wisdom of God. And he knows that many of God's creation can pass away, right? If he, if he takes away their spirit, they die. And yet, God's glory doesn't die. That's what he's after. Yes, his creation may die. He may remove their spirit from them and they may die, but not glory of God. And he's, he's asphyxiated on this. He wants us to understand this. And I think this is perhaps one of the highest and most daring notes of praise the psalmist makes here. He's so impressed with the glory and wonder and beauty of God's creation. Listen, the psalmist boldly calls God to rejoice in his creation. Do you see that at the end of verse, um, verse uh, 31? Let the Lord be glad in his works. The psalmist said, oh God, you really outdid yourself. You should, you should be glad of what you did, God. You created all this stuff. You sustain all this stuff. You rebuke mountains and water. You have everything you control. You walk on the winds, on the winds and the chariots of clouds you ride. And he, he said, you should be glad in what you do. Isn't that interesting? What bold thoughts. Notice he talks about the trembling of the earth and the smoking of the mountains. This could be, this could be looking at Exodus 19 that we've seen during midweek and we're coming back to Exodus Wednesday. But, but I think it's more a reminder that God has this overwhelming power. In Hollister, where we're, where we're last church was, they just had a 4.8 earthquake this week. And it rattled them pretty good. You know, that's 4.8, you know, you set your coffee down and think about going for the door jam. I mean, it, how long is this one going to go? Uh, uh, the Bible, look at the Bible says here. Verse, I lost my place. Verse 32, thank you. He looks at the earth and it trembles. <laughs> I'm wondering, now, I'm not saying earthquakes are, are, are that, but I don't know what else to put towards that. Is that power? We want to look at the earth all we want. It might just swallow us up is all it may do. <laughs> but, but there are trembles with God looks at it. He touches these mountains and they, they smoke. What a tremendous power God has. Look at verses 28, excuse me, I lost my place here. Oh, and one last thing on there. I think when we look at natural disasters, when we look at natural disasters, I think we must probably rethink it. <laughs> look, does God have his hand in stuff? Certainly the Bible tells us it's true. Nine, God's glory must result in our praise. Oh, look at these, these are great verses. Verse 33 and verse 34. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I, am, while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Now, though the psalmist has a little focus on salvation in this one, he, he, he's more in 103 is where salvation is. And he's primarily focused on the greatness of God. The psalmist doesn't need anything else more than the, the glory of God and creator to bring praise. He means he looks at the world and what God has done and it causes him to praise the Lord. He sees him as the God of all creation. And he says, look, he says, you're worthy of my lifetime worship. You're worthy of all of my worship. Isn't that amazing? What, what have you been putting your hope in? I mean, think about it. Everybody's freaking out over 2020. What have you been putting your hope in? We have a God that the earth trembles when he looks at it. I mean, think about that compared to COVID and elections and all that stuff. What's driving your fear? Do you find relief in a creator God? 
If you believe in evolution, you're in trouble. You're in a lot of trouble. You believe in a God who spoke into creation. He certainly can save me and sustain me. And I think this is what this brings us back to, how glorious he is. Now, he, I think that Thomas is determined here. And I just want to show you this, and then we'll look at the last point real quickly. Look where he says this. Verse 34, as for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. I think that's a statement of determination. You and I need this statement. You know why? Because our flesh in this world can lose it sometimes. Right? You know your own self. You know your sinful tendencies. You need the Lord. I think what the psalmist is doing, because he sees all kinds of crazy things in his world as well, he says, I am determined to be glad in the Lord. Despite what's going on, I have no idea what his marriage was like, his children. I don't know what his finances were. I, I don't know what the economy was like when he wrote this. I don't know any of that. But here's what I do know. He made a determination that said, I'm going to be glad in the Lord. Are you determined to do that? Or are you determined to say, well, we'll just see, we'll see if he gives me what I want. Are you determined to be glad in the Lord? Out of all this sermon, everything I've said in here, can you come away with that? Can you be glad in the creator God, no matter what your circumstances are? I love that statement, and it's really resonated with me to this week. I will choose to be glad in the Lord. I'll look to your general revelation, God, where you showed yourself through creation, and I'll look to your special revelation, the word of God, and that alone will help me be glad in you, God. I'll believe in you. And so COVIDs and pandemics and plagues and racism and government takeovers and lies and deceits and love of money and love of power and self-centered and self-interest. We live in a fallen world, but we have a God who speaks like thunder, brothers and sisters. And so our hope is with him, the one who controls the wind and walks on the waves. Let the world bring its worst. We have a creator, God and Savior. Amen. That's where we find our hope. Last thought, 10. Judgment or blessing, God is glorified in both. It may seem strange when you get to the end of this. Look at verse 35. Let the sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord. It may seem in that he ends on that note, but I believe the psalmist, what he wants here is us to understand that there are consequences to rejecting a creator God. That's what he's after. You want to reject a creator? Hmm. You're going to be consumed. You will be no more. It's not a teaching on annihilationism. It means judgment. It means he will judge you. And I believe this is what the Apostle Paul picked up on Romans 1. He saw God has clearly displayed himself in general revelation that he's made himself evident all, even the Godhead made evident, Romans 1 tells us, and yet man worships the creature, the creature rather than the creator. And he says, if you don't put your hope in the creator, you're going to be consumed. And we live in a world of people just being consumed, all right? They're consumed in fear, they're consumed in all kinds of things, but this is going to be in the end. They will not stand before God. So when people reject a God as Savior and Creator, in some strange way, God is even really glorified in that. He's glorified in that. And I think we find strength in that. We say, and then we're like the psalmist, we come back and we say, bless the Lord, O my soul. And we're compelled 
to be remembered. He, he called us out of darkness. We're not like those who reject the Creator. He called us out of darkness. And our soul is stirred that God would love us and not leave us to Himself. He loves a wild donkey. He cares and gives Him drink. How much more does He care for me that He would send His Son, His one and only Son, in Himself. He said actually Himself in a way, right? His full deity in Christ, dressed in humanity to die for us. Oh, Friend, there's no greater God. And I think this is a fitting close as the creature worships the Creator here. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Father, thank You for all that You've done for us. You're truly a great Father. You are perfect in all that You do, in judgment and in creation. And everything that you do, you're perfect. You have no sin in you. You're absent of evil. You're holy all the time. And Lord, we must learn from you, not try to tell you what you should be. And today we've learned that you love us. And you're a great God. You're a mighty God. You're dressed in splendor and majesty. You're dressed in this unapproachable light. And yet you're mindful of us. You're mindful of us. So Lord, we praise you today. Help us have a high view of you, God. Help us stand firm and not cave in to the world's godless views of this creation. We know you made it, Lord. And we know you sustain us and love us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me for a closing benediction? O Creator and Savior, cause us to dwell in Your light and behold Your glory time and time again. I think we've done that this morning. Cause us to see Your power and Your authority in Your creation. Cause us to marvel deep in our souls at Your amazing strength and grasp Your intimate involvement with us. Give us the endurance to worship You until our final breath, for surely You are deserving of such devotion. Amen?